Hello again. This is Gary Meese with the case against. This will be episode 55. Coming to you from the banks of beautiful Rotten Bayou. We're going to continue with uh, the failed Miss Kelly alibis. We're coming up on four episodes about Miss Kelly's failed alibis, and it may take several more episodes to finish it all. And I think if you're following along with this, you're probably coming to understand why nobody's ever really gone into this in any kind of depth uh, because it, it he had a lot of alibi witnesses and they con they constantly contradict themselves and others to the point that they're rendered not only useless as alibi witnesses but they actually work against the defense and it speaks to the utter incompetence of Dan Stedham as a defense attorney in this case that he allowed this to go on when he could have come up with two or three alibi witnesses, not not try to make fatal errors like cl claim that documents were signed that turned out to that evening of May 5th, 1993, that actually turned out to be signed some other day. Uh, you know, if he just limited himself a little bit, I, he would have had at least a chance of maybe getting s somebody on the jury to believe that Jesse was actually someplace else. And, of course, the witnesses were all overreaching in every sense of the word. So, but we're going to continue with this. Um, I want to say briefly that uh, I hope it's brief. I may go on a rant here. But uh, with the exception of a Friday follow-up, and I don't anticipate anything worth commenting on from a, a Friday follow-up this coming Friday, Bob Ruff is through with the West Memphis 3 case, as far as we can see. I'm sure he's going to mention it, and he's going to try to promote, uh, continue to put pressure on uh, Scott Ellington uh, to release evidence into his possession so he can go get it DNA tested. Uh, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, but otherwise, he's through. His much ballyhooed investigation essentially went nowhere. He came up with nothing new. He came up, the only thing he came up with new was some like bad information. Uh, you know, uh, if you saw the oxygen special, you saw <laughs> that ridiculous, it was embarrassing for me to watch, and I really enjoyed, I should enjoy watching Ruff make a fool of himself, but it was so bad that I, I was actually, you know, I felt I felt bad for everybody involved. It was so bad, and it was on national television where he's, he's, uh, interrogating, you know, the so-called fourth boy. And it just was unbelievably inept all the way through. And then they left it in, which shows just how little they had. Either that or the producers were secretly enjoying what a fool Ruff was. Uh, 
And a similar sort of thing with the hunt for Jesse Miskelly. You know, Miskelly shouldn't be that hard to find, but Ruff was the big investigator. Top-notch investigator Bob Ruff couldn't find Jesse Miskelly in the in a trailer park in Marion, Arkansas. It's really not in Marion, but let's let Marion, Arkansas, which is in in itself is a quite a small town. And I've I've spent some, quite a bit of time there, familiar with the town. It's not that hard to find people there. And it also says how if if Miskelly is supposedly so unintelligent, he managed to elude Bob Ruff, which either speaks to Ruff's lack of intelligence, which may be self-evident, or uh, maybe to the fact that Miskelly, what, whatever his IQ test out, and I think it tests out at 72, but, you know, in some aspects, he's certainly more intelligent than that. I mean, he tested more intelligent than that. Um, he may be barely literate, though he can read, as, as obvious from the Paradise Lost movies, and he can write, as, as evidenced by the fact that he wrote letters to his family from uh, jail immediately after arrest that were not highly literate, but certainly more literate than the average second grader. But he was, but you know, he's poorly educated, not smart, but he's smart enough to elude Bob Ruff. <laughs> I just have to laugh. It's so funny. And, you know, much of the rest of it, and, you know, and the special forces guy running, running down the ditch uh, uh, from Robin Hood Hills to the Bojangles restaurant. A, a totally artificial exercise. Uh, somebody who's in really good physical condition, taking a route that no sane, no well, Bojang- Mr. Bojangles wasn't particularly sane, probably, but there's Mr. Bojangles, even as deranged as he was, wasn't going to be running down that big ditch in, in, in the dark to get to the Bojangles restaurant. The idea that he would be doing that is ridiculous. And Ruff doesn't really seem to understand that people can shuffle along the roadsides in West Memphis, Arkansas, in pretty disheveled condition, and nobody thinks too much about it. Uh, if they're actually just blowing blood out everywhere, which it's that Mr. Bojangles didn't bleed to death. So yeah, he was bleeding, but and he smeared some blood, but you know he wasn't bleeding to death in there. Uh, in the woman's bathroom at the restaurant. Uh, but the idea that uh, this experiment that Ruff ran was comparable to what the experience of Mr. Bojangles would have experienced if he was actually trying to traverse traverse that route is patently ridiculous. And of course, the mo- as I say, the most ridiculous part of it is the idea that he would do that to begin with. So, so much laughable and ridiculous, including Ruff's hammy performances in front of the camera. Uh, his his uh, ability to get in close with uh, various people, win the confidence of 
Pam Hicks and win the confidence of Ryan Clark and win the confidence of David Jacoby and basically in the end betray all their interest. It speaks to a certain utter lack of character that I find disconcerting, really contemptible. But, and that's, and he, he came up with nothing. He came up with not only, no, as I say, nothing new of any substance whatsoever. And for that matter, his army came up with nothing new of any substance whatsoever. That was, it was certainly at least displayed in the podcast and in the, uh, the television show. Maybe on the fan side on Facebook. I'm not a member. I think I might have gotten kicked off, but if, if or blocked, but if I'm not, I, I just, I'm not going to, I have no desire to join. And I'm certainly not going to do it at this point. Um, but I'm going to go in now to uh, excerpt from uh, Where the Monsters Go, uh, which is the second book in a two-volume set I did on the West Memphis Three case, the first book being uh, Blood on Black. They're both available from Amazon. There's also a combined, condensed, revised, somewhat more readable and somewhat more, or maybe reader-friendly perhaps, uh, I cut out some of the some of the repetition that I left in the other two volumes, just for the sake of completeness. I cut some of that out, and there's other things I cut out a lot. <laughs> there was a lot. I had a lot of years of editing experience, and I put all my experience to work to boil all this stuff down to uh, something that was more readable and more condensed. And sometimes it's a matter of going through a paragraph and picking off three or four words that aren't absolutely necessary, tighten it up a little bit, and the next thing you know, you know you're knocking out a couple of thousand words just in the, with that that technique over the course of a chapter, even, uh, but certainly over a, a course of a couple of big, fairly large books that you can do a lot there to edit. Um, and it's somewhat more affordable than the other two books, particularly in the uh, print version. Uh, anyway, I'm going to get into some of the less important witnesses, alibi witnesses in uh, the Jesse Miskelly case at first, and then I, I don't know how far I'll go today. But um, we'll start with... Uh, and briefly, this case involves the murder of murders of Michael Moore, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, this occurred in a woods known as Robin Hood Hills. There have been three movies. There have been four documentaries made about the case three Paradise Lost movies and West of Memphis, in which one of the producers was uh, Damien Eccles, who was one of the convicted killers. Uh, Jesse Miskelly is another convicted killer. Jason Baldwin is one of the other convicted killers. 
They were all teenagers at the time of, of this uh, killing. And none of them had credible alibis, which was the whole basis for Ruff justifying his new investigation. And that he was claiming they all had great alibis. Well, none of them had alibis that were really any good at all. They failed in court. They failed when you compare the compare against the record. They fail when you just look at credibility. In Baldwin's case, they're fairly it's what he has to say is fairly ridiculous. And uh Kelly's case, his own witnesses screwed him up and the same thing happened with Eccles. His own witnesses basically gave evidence that worked against his case. Anyway, we're going to go with James. We're going to talk about Miskelly's witnesses here. Uh, James McNeese, owner of uh, Jim's Repair Service, which is where Jesse Miskelly Sr. worked. Big Jesse being the father of little Jesse. Uh, McNeese declined to speak to police when contacted on June 11th, which was uh, eight days after the arrest on June 3rd, 1993. By January 31st, McNeese was all too happy to offer an attempted alibi during the trial. In other words, if there was, if you're going to get charges dismissed, a good good time to start is at the time of the arrest. You can, if you can say, yeah, officers, I know this young man. I saw him from six thirty to eight, and he was hanging out at my garage, which is not what he says. But if he had that good an alibi, and he had that strong an alibi that was corroborated by anybody else then Jesse Miskelly would have been walking free as a, from one visit by James McNeese down to the police station, more than likely. Now, McNeese, but he didn't do that. He shows up at the trial, and they we're going to see this pattern develop uh, all along here where people who haven't had anything to say until the day of the trial suddenly show up and get their in many cases, get their head handed to them by the prosecutor. But uh, in some cases, their their testimony just simply does not help Jesse's case because it conflicts with too many other people. Um, McNeese remembered May 5th because, quote, I had to close my own shop and it kind of upset me. Uh, Jesse, and he's talking about Jesse Sr., had been working for me for about three or four years, and he always opened and closed for me. And I had to stay that day and close on account of he had to go to DWI school. At 5.30, he left the shop, and I had to stay and close for him. Now, McNeese said he closed about 6.15 and went straight home, and he saw little Jesse on the way home. Quote, he was at the corner where I live, my home, him and us. The I'll get his name right in a minute. Dennis Carter was out coming down the road. I went out and was uh, asked him where they were headed, and they said, we're going to practice wrestling after a while. 
the time was about 6.15 or 6.20. Now, he's saying it's about 6.15. Susie Brewer, she says she was with Jesse, little Jesse, uh, all afternoon. Uh, several witnesses in the last episode testified they were with Jesse about this time, uh, sitting out on the porch, walking around together, etc., etc. So... We have some problems here. Uh, and then, of course, McNeese is recalling an event from all those months before, on May 5th. The only reason he would have to remember it is Big Jesse going to DWI school. In other words, Big Jesse, who was known to drink a bit, had to go to DWI school that evening. And he got in trouble in his testimony because he basically tried to fudge on the times and he was it was proven that you know he wasn't telling the truth on the stand which doesn't look good for the defense uh mcneese testified i went out and was picking at them and uh, he comes up he always hugged me and he come up and he put his head on my chest and i was rubbing his he got he had like a crew cut and i asked him i said what are you fixing to do and he said I'm going wrestling after a while, and I said, you're not big enough to go wrestling. You're not big enough to fight the gnats off your ass, much less go wrestling, boy. And that's exactly what I said. McNeese uh, said he saw Jesse again at 6.30. He was at, uh, at the end of the street talking to the deputy sheriff. They were called out, and I walked to the edge of the road to see what was going on, and him and the other kids was at the car talking to the deputy sheriff. McNeese testified under cross-examination. The deputy sheriff's car was sitting in this guy's driveway at the end of the street, and Dennis, he's speaking of Dennis Carter, all the kids, there was a whole group of kids around him, around him, talking to the deputy sheriff. Now, James Dalhite, who was the deputy sheriff that McNeese mentions, knew the Miskellys. He knew little Jesse. New Big Jesse. He handled the police call there. He did not recall Jesse Miskelly Jr. being on the scene. He doesn't describe an interaction with a huge crowd of people, it, you know, five or six people. Uh, this is an altercation over um, a woman slapping, basically abusing. Stephanie Dollar's little boy when he was riding around on a bicycle, uh, which apparently was virtually a daily occurrence in the, that neighborhood. Some little boy getting abused by somebody else over something, 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 something. Anyway, um, so McNeese doesn't have a lot of credibility here. And his other other story about encountering Jesse at 6:15 not a really a great alibi he, he does put the, he does put the time uh, late enough that it would be di somewhat difficult for Miskelly to leave there go over from at 6:15 go over hook up at with Jason and Damien at uh, Lakeshore Estates and then walk to Robin Hood Hills 
and get there much before 7 o'clock. But uh, and that's the only way it would be a, an, an alibi. And uh, it's not it wouldn't be a very strong one, even if it was corroborated, but it would would be helpful. However, he by throwing in this other detail with and he does timestamp it. He does remember the date because of the DWI class. However, it's pretty much negated by the fact that it conflicts with all these other statements. So how much credibility can we give it? Not that much. McNeese admitted he never approached the police with information, and he was wearing a yellow ribbon in support of Jesse Jr. How smart was this? He had all these people from the trailer park show up at the trial to testify for the defense, and they're wearing yellow ribbons to show their support for Jesse. All it did was give the impression that this was a conspiracy, if you will, among the trailer park folks to provide an alibi to Jesse any way they could because they were friends and and uh, acquaintances of the Miskellis. Uh, it could not have helped the case at all, and it was absolutely unnecessary, and why Dan Stidham allowed them to go forward with this. I mean, maybe he argued, maybe he talked to them before they came in and said, please don't, you know, let's, let's eschew any, you know, obvious symbols like this. But, uh, and if they ignored him, then they basically helped burn their buddy, Jesse Miskelly Jr., You get the impression Stidham didn't even do that sort of due diligence. Uh, perhaps I'm wrong. Be interesting to see what he had to say about that. Uh, asked about Miskelly's comment about the Nats toward the end of his Bible confession, which is the confession that uh, Miskelly gave with his hand on a Bible after his confession to his defense attorney, Dan Stidham. Miskelly said, it wasn't that day, which sounds reasonable to me. Um, in Nisa's testimony about his defense with, about his encounter with little Jesse conflicted with other defense witnesses, as, uh, as I've said. Okay, enough with McNeese. Lewis Hoggard, an 18-wheeler owner-operator who lived next door to the Miskellys, had not talked to police or prosecutors before taking the stand, but like other acquaintances, was more than willing to offer up an alibi. Uh, Hoggard produced log sheets from his trucking trips, demonstrating he likely was in town May 5th. He testified he had seen Jesse Jr. in front of his house and at Stephanie Dollar's house across the street near 6 or 6.30 that evening. He had begun mowing his yard with a riding lawnmower. Quote, I observed a police car going into Stephanie's yard, and I saw Jesse approach the car. I assume they were talking. Uh, 
The police car left, and shortly after that, Jesse started walking toward his house down the street. Um, Hoggard asked Miss Skelly what was going on and was told some lady down the street had slapped one of Stephanie's young sons. Um, in the Bible confession, Dan Stidham would ask Miss Skelly, do you remember talking to Lewis Hoggard that day? In this context, the conversation occurred when Miss Skelly had walked home after the murders. In other words, Miss Skelly said, yeah, I talked to him, but it was after I got home from, after I got back from killing the kids. Miss Skelly answered, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't hear him. And then Susie said, Lewis is talking to you. And I said, what? And he told me that what happened. And I told him that Connie slapped Colton. Hoggard, Connie Molden slapped Colton, uh, Colton, whatever Colton's last name was. I don't think it was Dollar, but I could be wrong. Uh, Hoggard asserted again under cross-examination that the deputy's car had been, quote, in Stephanie Dollar's yard, unquote. Deputy Dollarheight had testified he did not go to Stephanie Dollar's house that evening, but had met her and her husband at an intersection a detail confirmed by other witnesses. <coughs> Hoggard said he had an independent memory of the date because of, I saw a copy of a police report. Stephanie Dollar was taken around a police report and everybody was looking at it. And so they could kind of get their minds around how they were going to alibi Jesse Muskelly Jr., Anyway, he says, I saw a copy of a police report and by my log that I had arrived home on May the 5th. Hogger became aware of seeing Jesse on May the 5th, probably a month later, which is when Jesse was arrested. It was about a month later. Uh, an undated and otherwise unidentified note at Callahan, the Callahan site indicated that Hoggard said he saw Miss Kelly at about 5.30 p.m. that day after arriving home about 8 p.m. Like other witnesses for the defense, he wore a yellow ribbon. Hoggard admitted he had said that Jesse was wearing the same haircut May 5th as when he was arrested. And Miss Kelly had gotten a radically different haircut the day after the killings. Um, little top knot on top. Um, I can't really describe it, but little lines in the sides. And before it had been more of just a standard haircut. A report from De Detective Ridge described a brief conversation with Hoggard. Uh, Brian Ridge is the detective's name. He informed me that Jesse Muskelly Sr., who is his next-door neighbor, had approached him if he had any memory of 0593 and was made by Stephanie Dollar. The complaint was reportedly about a disturbance that had occurred in which some kids had been in a fight or something to that effect. Mr. Hoggard stated that he had seen Jesse Jr. around the corner and they thought he may have seen him say something to the deputy on the scene. Mr. Hoggard stated that he had just gotten off work that day and that he just started mowing his yard when he saw the deputy. He stated that Jesse Muskelly Jr. was walking by his yard and he asked Jesse what had happened. 
at which time he remembered that Jesse had mentioned that some kids had gotten into a fight. Mr. Hoggard informed me that he thought that the time was about 5.30 p.m. on that date. Among other problems with this, the time was uh, later, it would have had to been later than that because the police call was around 6.30. and would have been a pretty darn good alibi for Miss Kelly if, if he had actually been on the scene, but he wasn't, despite what all his alibi witnesses say. Dennis Ray Carter, Jr., a 15-year-old Marion Junior High ninth grader, living across the street from the Miskellys, supposedly spent much of the afternoon and evening of May 5th in the company of Miskelly, although he had not mentioned that in statements to the police. <laughs> yeah, and Dennis Carter can't spend all this time with uh, Miskelly on that date while... Miskelly's also hanging out on the porch with Christy Jones and walking around and visiting various people with Susie Brewer all simultaneously. Reality doesn't work that way. There is some evidence he was spending time with Dennis. He did spend some time with Dennis Carter, though, and we'll get into I hope. I think we're going to be getting into that. If not, I'll make sure we get into it one way or the other. In his Bible confession which is the confession he made to Stidham. Uh, Miskelly said Carter had asked him that afternoon if Miskelly knew anyone who could get them something to drink. Miskelly had gotten Vicki Hutchison to buy each of them a bottle of whiskey. After sharing drinks with Carter, Miskelly headed off to Lakeshore to meet Eccles and Baldwin. So we actually haven't, some pretty good evidence he did spend time with Dennis Carter. Uh, famously, Miskelly confessed to having had Vicki Hutchison confirm this, that she had bought bottles of whiskey for Dennis Carter and Miskelly on that date. When she was asked about this, she had to kind of dredge up her memory, but she did remember the, the brand name. Uh, after Miskelly gave his, not his Bible confession, but a later confession in front of prosecutors, uh, Stidham and the uh, prosecutors went for a look in the dark under this overpass, underpass or whatever, underpass, I guess it is, uh, this bridge, so-called, where they found this shard of glass. They took it to the local liquor store and after searching for quite a while, these weren't bottle experts, they found a bottle of Evan Williams. They matched it up to, uh, they matched up the shard to the bottle of Evan Williams and they determined that indeed they'd found a shard of an Evan Williams whiskey bottle at the very site where Jesse Miskelly Jr. had described breaking the bottle after f fleeing the scene of the crime in a fit of anger, and he was and he was shocked, and who who knows what was going through his head at the time? He was he was still obviously must have been highly still drunk at the time, and uh, this matches the story of uh, 
Vicki Hutchison. So you've got two people telling the same story. Both of them have been known to tell untruths, but they don't tell, you know, they, whether they mean to or not, they're going to tell the truth some of the time anyway. Miskelly really seemed to be trying to tell the truth in his, his later confessions. And honestly, all his confessions on, on there are, seem to be mostly true with a lot of minimization and uh, his idea of diverting the attention off him and onto somebody else. And also demonizing particularly Miss Skelly, but Baldwin as well. Now, Carter had talked to uh, West Memphis Police Lieutenant Diane Hester on June 9th, a couple of days after these arrests. And he was in the presence of his parents at the time, and he made no mention of the, the bottles of whiskey. Carter, somewhat understandable if his parents were there, I think, uh, Carter said he had known Miskelly all his life, but did not know Baldwin or Eccles, though he knew their names. He reported rumors about devil worshippers that met at Stonehenge. There was a local co- abandoned cotton gin called Stonehenge, and this is his version of Stonehenge, Stonehenge. He had heard that the devil worshippers would cut off a dog's head and eat meat from the leg, which is... Again, the same sort of story that um, Miskelly told, and Miskelly's all the details of Miskelly's confessions didn't come out in the press. So apparently, this is what they were talking about around the uh, around the trailer parks. Carter had heard that Eccles was the leader, and said that six months before. Miskelly told him that Damien was a devil worshipper who ate the right leg of dogs. Uh, Miskelly told him that this occurred in the woods behind Elite Lamp. Now, Elite Lamp was still in business when I was there, and I believe it was in, in uh, early 2010s. Uh, I, I believe it was on Missouri Avenue, which is the main thoroughfare there. I am not really, I think it. I did some research and it determined that it was in the same location back in 1993, but I am not sure about that at this point. And I'm not sure it's highly relevant. Uh, but there were some, there were woods all behind all sorts of places up and down uh, Missouri Avenue, particularly up to, between the gap between Marion and uh, West Memphis. Um, Carter had seen devil-worshipping signs on trees as well as KKK markings during hunting trips there. And I have to say this is, a lot of this is fairly standard generic signs that young vandals are going to leave for whatever reason, whatever their motivations are. Uh, Though a friend to Miss Skelly, Carter gave damaging statements about Miss Skelly's propensity to violence stating Miss Kelly liked to fight and would start fights. <coughs> Excuse me. He gave two anecdotes. About two months before the interview, Miss Kelly was fighting a, 
boy named Eric in Lakeshore when Tiffany, Eric's 13-year-old girlfriend, tried to intervene. Ms. Carter said Miss Kelly turned around and hit her in the ear as hard as he could, prompting a trip to juvenile court. Uh, in other words, just a month or so before the killings, uh, Miss Kelly had assaulted Tiffany. It was 13. And he had also assaulted her boyfriend. Uh, Carter said that four five months before at Highland, a little girl named Paula, about five or six, was throwing rocks and accidentally hit Miss Kelly. So Miss Kelly chased the girl and then threw a rock that hit her in the head, said Carter, and laughed about it when she started crying. The girl's mother called the police who came out and talked to Miss Kelly. Miss Kelly, quote, told his father about it, but his dad didn't say anything to him about it, unquote. Carter was, quote, not really surprised, unquote, when he heard about the arrest. Quote, states that he was always nice to him, but it didn't really surprise him that he was involved, unquote. Carter also talked about Miss Kelly's home life, according to Lieutenant Hester's notes, quote, States that he does not like his stepmother, which had been Lee Rush, at all. They weren't married, but she was living there, so I guess she was de facto stepmother. States that she stays drunk all the time, and so does Jesse's dad. States that about two months ago, he was spending the night with Jesse when they came into the trailer about 6.30 p.m. Lee was passed out on the couch wearing nothing but her panties. Jesse went and told his dad, who didn't say anything, states that Lee and Jesse's dad both stayed drunk all the time. Dennis states that Jesse drank a lot and smoked pot when he could get it, states that he also saw Jesse sniffing gas about 20 times, also saw Jesse take many thins, bought them at Delta in Marion, got high from those. Delta would have been some sort of gas station in Marion, Arkansas. There is no record of Carter mentioning any interaction with Miss Kelly on May 5th in the June 9th interview. Carter gave a handwritten statement to Hester on June 22nd concerning wrestling trips to Dias. I went to Dice, he spells it D-I-C-E, it's D-Y-E-S-S. I went to Dice one or two times, but it was after the three little boys was murder. I never went with Jesse to Dice. The time I went to Dice was with Kevin and Johnny and Freedy and Bo, as with Johnny friend. He's spelling Johnny in a bizarre way. Uh, it was on a Friday night, but Jesse did not go with us. Freedy, which is, he, he spells Freedy, Freddie, uh, F-R-E-E-D-I-E, but it's Freddie, um, lives out in like Lakeshore, so does... Bo, but he spells it like show, L-I-K-E-S-H-O-W. So does Bo. Freedy and Bo are brother. Jehoni friend lives in Highland also. I don't know N-O Kevin and Jehoni, but I don't know their T-H-E-R-E names. And I don't know N-O Freddy, which he spells right that time, or Bo either, or Jehoni girlfriend name. 
I know Jesse goes to Dice, but he usually goes on Monday or Friday. Okay. Not a great deal of literacy skill there. The second statement made no mention of May 5th and said Carter never went to Dias with Miskelly. Testifying February 1st, Miskelly, I mean, Carter claimed to remember clearly spending time with Miskelly on May 5th. Right after school, me and him walked down the road about, I'd say, a mile or two, you know. Now, right after school would have been about 3.30, so this would be about 4 o'clock when Miskelly supposedly was spending time with Susie Brewer, going over to uh, one of the Johnny's house, I think Johnny Deadman. Uh, but anyway, Susie Brewer says she was with him all afternoon. They did this and that. Uh, she remembered a conversation with Jim McNeese about wrestling. We was going to go to the wrestling. Asked who went. He said, Jesse, Freddie, Johnny, and me, and said those were all who went. Now, there were there was a long list of people who went to that on that wrestling trip supposed wrestling trip so it wasn't just four or five people uh he added i think there could be missing more people okay well let's give him a break on that asked why he remembered that night he stated quote because i remember i did say in my statement that i didn't remember going that day and then i started thinking about jim mcneese and that brought my you know that's what he says, and you know, he says, you know, and when I say I don't know what I don't know why Jim thinking about Jim McNeese would clarify all this up for you, but so be it. Concerning his statements on June 9th and June twenty second, he said, I wasn't correct, which makes really builds a case for his credibility now, doesn't it? Uh Vicki Hutchison brought him alcohol, quote, a lot of times. Asked by the prosecution to point out his new version of events in his June 9th statement, he said, I was mistaken then. He denied saying anything about Eccles. I don't even know the boy. And Carter, like the rest of these misguided people, wore a yellow ribbon and he explained why he said i love little jesse i want him to get out and we'll conclude with that today next up on the testimony is going to be fred revel uh the rowdy rebel referred to as Freedy by young Dennis Carter. And that's going to be a very, very, very devastating testimony uh, for the Miskelly alibi defense. And I have to say that Mr. Ravel, who's since passed on, he seemed to be sincere and thoroughly convinced of his version of events and, uh, and really truly believe that he was Miskelly couldn't have been very involved with the crime because he was thoroughly convinced that he was with Fred Ravel. I, I, that was my impression from, from this. Um, 
haven't looked, I haven't watched the Paradise Lost movies lately, and I, I really need to go back and do that. But I think you're going to get the idea that maybe, maybe, and you haven't seen, you you know, I've, I have watched the ID Network, and I have watched uh, Bob Ross Oxygen series. And I'm going to just say simply, you're just not going to see the information that I'm presenting in any of those venues. And for, for good or bad, you can write it off as, well, it's not that important. These are minor witnesses. No, they're not minor witnesses. They are trying to build an alibi defense for Jesse Miskelly Jr., and they're failing miserably. It's really kind of sad to watch because you can get the idea that these people really did like and care for Jesse, even though he's obviously a bully and a thug. But, you know, I'm sure there, he had some uh, other qualities that they appreciated. I'm not sure what they were, but they perhaps loyalty. He may have been really good to his friends. It seemed That seems to have been the case. So, um, but it's uh, kind of ridiculous to watch this play out. And then for some somebody like Bob Ruff to turn around and talk about Miskelly as having all these alibi witnesses without really understanding, or maybe he understands. I think he may understand, not totally convinced of this, because I'm not really sure how much research he's actually done, but he seems to have done a, some but I think he simply wants to write off all these, all the problems with all these alibis by the sheer number. That's a mistake of quantity over quality. There are no quality alibi witnesses for Jesse Miskelly Jr. There are no quality alibi witnesses for uh, Damian Eccles. And the only one who gives even a reasonably decent al alibi uh, testimony for Eccles is Michelle, his sister, who's like 14. And I mean, how much weight is the jury going to give your 14-year-old sister for saying you were at home, home talking to girls and on a trip over to a family friend's house to watch Beverly Hills 90210? Just not that much. Otherwise, it's pretty much a disaster there. And I don't, I haven't timed myself yet, but I think I'm running out of, uh, I think I've gone on long enough. Uh, I wish everyone well. It's beautiful weather here. I'm going to get out and go for a walk or maybe mow the grass. I'm not sure it's time yet. And otherwise, try to enjoy the day. I hope you do as well. I know every, people are locked in. And uh, frankly, I'm finding doing things like listening to podcasts to be a, a fruitful way of uh, filling the time. And I hope you find my podcast to be one of those fruitful ways. Thank you.